welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. In 1924, the eminent nerve specialist Sir Roderick Glossop urged Bertie Wooster and his friend Charles Biffy Biffin to attend the British Empire Exhibition being held at Wembley. It is the most supremely absorbing and educational collection of objects, Glossop enthused, both animate and inanimate, gathered from the four corners of the empire that has ever been assembled in England's history. After arrival at Wembley, Bertie's genius-level manservant Jeeves shimmered off, and the heat, exertion, and the education of all became so overwhelming that Bertie eventually sought solace inside an ice-cold glass of green swizzle served up by a bartender in the Jamaican tent. Perhaps Jeeves, who was known to curl up with a volume of Spinoza in his off hours, attended the principal intellectual attraction at Wembley, the Conference on Some Living Religions Within the Empire. This awkwardly named meeting of world religions is one of several chronicled by my guest Tal Howard in his new book, The Faiths of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue. In doing so, he traces how interreligious dialogue was defined, how it in turn defined religion, and how it reflected and reinforced ideals and concepts such as pluralism, cosmopolitanism, and orientalism, but not always in the ways one might expect. Tal Howard is Professor of History and Humanities and Richard and Phyllis Duesenberg Chair of Christian Ethics at Valparaiso University in Indiana. This is his second appearance on Historically Thinking. He was previously on the podcast talking about the historian Jakob Burkhardt. Tal Howard, welcome back. It's great to be here, Al. Thanks for, thanks for having me again. So um, I admire your courage. You wrote a book about committee meetings in which people talk about God. And in fact, on, I think, I just I just was looking at on page, somewhere in the back on the conclusion, you have someone who says, oh yes, Ibu Patel in his memoir, Acts of Faith, says the problem with going to these interreligious events was that they were excruciatingly boring. So you've written 250 pages about excruciatingly boring meetings. I'm not trying to like make people buy this, obviously. This is so why would you do this thing to yourself? And why did you decide this needed to be done? Yeah, maybe I'm an intellectual masochist at the end of the day. Exactly. <laughs> Please, sir, may well, I have I, another? I, I, my, my hope is by the time the reader gets to that quote, they find that actually interesting. So. True. Okay. You didn't put <laughs> that in the, you didn't put that in the introduction. It's in the conclusion. It's true. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, um, you know, I, I think this goes back to the, the origins of a book. I think in my case, most books have some autobiographical connection. Um, but I found myself directing an academic center at Gordon College, where I used to teach in the Boston area after 9-11. And students are, of course, um, you know, wondering, what does Islam teach? What, what, is, you know, what is this terrorist act that happened? What's the relationship between Islam and the West? Is there something called religious violence? Uh, has that been in the Christian tradition? How do, how do Christians and, and Muslims differ on certain things? So that was kind of in the air. And um, working with certain colleagues, we staged a number of interfaith dialogues, inviting um, imams and often um, uh, rabbis to, uh, to campus and uh, had a number of very interesting discussions uh, with them, and, and um, I guess I, I did not I did not find these boring, but I, I, I <laughs> found myself as a historian asking, what exactly is interfaith dialogue? I um, I'm trained as a historian, so I didn't come through like a religious studies program, but I, I had ready access in my mind to something called interfaith dialogue or interreligious dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I know that many people practice that. And as I began to read a little bit in the literature, I just thought this is just a sprawling literature. And um, many uh, centers and initiatives have been founded uh, in the late 20th century. But then after 9-11, there's sort of this global pro- proliferation of different interfaith or interreligious centers, all with broadly trying to foster uh, peace in some in some manner. Um but I, I found myself just asking, where does this come from? And do I have gifts as a historian could, could trace its conceptual history? Um, you know, German, Germans have a great, con, you know, the Begriffsgeschichte, the history of the concept. <laughs> um, 
So I, I began to try to think about uh, as I explored, you know, more and more, and you know, it's quite it's quite immense. You, I mean, if you just Google interfaith dialogue and or interreligious dialogue, you'll have this enormous range of uh, city councils uh, have an interfaith component, uh, universities, uh, an interfaith center, interfaith chapel, and I, I thought this is just a, a historical phenomenon that needs some type of historical contextualization. Narrative. So that, that's that's what that's what led me. Uh, to the so it's a That's that, 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 that. It's I like that. I mean, it's a, it's one of those great German words that really we don't have uh, we don't have an equivalent of. Uh, yeah. You know, so, it, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's uh, let's uh, begin. Then I wanted to begin with um, you. Very, I think, cleverly organized the. Um, book around certain centers, and we'll get back to centers and periphery in a second, uh, well, in several, in, in, near the end of the program, but several centers. Uh, and I want to start with the first of these, which is Fatapur Sikri. Um, and I want, in each of these centers, I want you to describe basically the, it briefly give us a sense of the personalities and the stakes and what goes on each of these means. I'll, we'll, we'll go through that and then we'll go back uh, in the last part of the program, we'll go back and we'll sort of tease out some of the um, some of the overall lessons that can be drawn from comparing these these the, what what went on at different times in these four centers. Okay, so Fatibor Sikri, uh, where is it? Who's involved? Uh, yeah, let, let me. I mean, if I could just preface sure. this by saying, sure, along sure. with centers and peripheries, and another um, sort of intellectual device I worked with was that of a turning point. Because this yeah. was such a diffusive, large phenomenon, I thought that, you know, historians, we have one one tool in our toolkit is that of turning points. Can, can you isolate a, a key period or a key moment uh, in the history of something? And that's what I began to do. Uh, in chapter one, which is just entitled Harbingers, I look at a number of uh, uh, things that you might call interfaith dialogue, uh, albeit about la letra. And um, before coming to the modern period of the 19th and 20th centuries. But one of the most interesting was at Fatipur Sikri. This was uh, briefly the capital of the Mughal Empire um, uh, in the reign of Akbar. So the, the, the 1500s, 1600s, early modern period is what we are talking about here. And uh, I, I think two things go into this. He, he established there something called the Ibadat Khana, uh, which might be translated as the House of Worship. But it was distinct that from a mosque, it was where he gathered people of different religious outlooks to have conversations. Um, and he seemed to be genuinely intellectually interested uh, in these conversations. I mean, he is the Mughal emperor. So he's, he presides over a uh, geographical domain that's in present day northern India, and Pakistan and Afghanistan that has enormous religious complexity. Um, uh, Islam. Uh, the you know traditional uh, heartland of Buddhism, uh, of course, uh, many uh, various types of Hindu background, uh, smattering of Jews, ancient Christians, Jesuit missionaries, and uh, he's kind of curious, and he's in, influenced by certain Sufi strands of Islam that um, kind of have certain ideas of oneness and unity at their core, mm -hmm. but. There's also a very a political pragmatic reason. I mean, he has to create peace in a you know an ethnically and religiously complex place. So I think in, in all the literature on Akbar, you usually see these two motives: his genuine curiosity, but he also has an interest in in tamping down um, anything that could lead to division and turmoil uh, in the um, in the empire that he presided over. So he uh, you know often uh, the evenings before um, uh, prayer on Friday he would gather. Um, Different, uh, different exponents of different uh, positions, and kind of hear, hear them make their case, and uh, and uh, so that uh, that was one. I mean, there, there's several other uh, harbingers of the modern interfaith movement in that first chapter, but that was the one that sort of stuck out to me most. And also, like with the next one in like Chicago in 1893, which we'll talk about. You know, they were trying to look back at precedents. And you kind of look back and say, look back at Akbar and say, and example of that. One of the reasons they can do that is I was ex I was astounded to see you talk. You go through the list of sourcing uh, 
of sources to these the to these dialogues, and it's very rich. It's in multi languages from multiple perspectives. We have an idea of what Akbar was doing at these meetings. So it's, yeah, it's very well attested. Yeah, there, there have been some, you know, uh, literature um, on this, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, historical literature or uh, Mughal is talking about the, 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 the Mughal Empire generally, uh, and also, I mean, primary sources, the Jesuits who came up uh, and, and chatted with him left some pretty extensive um, notes of their meetings and I mean, they, they had the idea that they always felt that they were sort of on the cusp of converting him and that this would be a huge thing for Western uh, Christianity, Catholicism, if they could, um, if they could convert Akbar. And it, it was, he was often very coy, sort of leading them on that he, you know, he uh, was uh, embracing their uh, positions. And you know, it, it, he seems to be also somewhat uh, syncristic in his outlook that he mm -hmm. uh, adopts a number of different uh, positions and practices. Uh, well, he, he, in a way, is developed, as you say, he perhaps the one of the reasons they didn't succeed in converting, he was very interested in what they had to say. It's interesting what everyone has to say. But he's also interested in creating, formulating an, his own particular religious outlook. Could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, toward the end of his life, uh, working with some of his uh, courtiers, uh, he sort of formulate, formulates this idea of a... Uh, it's Sufi inflected, if you will. That, mm -hmm. I think that's the, the, the predominant influence. Uh, but it is sort of like sort of a pan-religious vision uh, that he, um, you know, held with a number of higher ups uh, in his uh, in his kingdom. But it, you know, it never it never became a movement. Nor did he ever you know, try to proselytize or anything like that. It was almost a, a privately held uh, synchristic vision of. Of, of the religions that drew from his own his own past experience and in, in these dialogues that he that he had stayed. It um it you said at its core you write it sought to elevate the pursuit of reason over reliance on tradition as the royal road for arriving at religious truth. It didn't proselytize. It was initiation into it was always by invitation only, and it never had a, more than a handful of adherents. Um, I think that's it's very interesting. Uh, uh, maybe to think about sort of. 20th when we get to the 20th century um also right yeah no it, it's, it's a very interesting if, if brief lift phenomenon. yeah so let's let's jump forward 300 years um and to chicago and 1892 so some of us might know it 1892 is the site of the world's fair in fact of all things a previous program we talked about a whaling ship uh, sailing through the Great Lakes to the Chicago World's Fair. Now we're adding to the World's Fair podcasts uh, our archive by talking about this con what, the International Congress of Religion, um, a Parliament of Religions. Um, so, what was it, and why? How did it come about, and why was it important? Well. This it took place in the context of the Great Chicago World's Fair that was supposed to take place in 1892. I mean, this was the back in the day when Columbus was unambiguously celebrated, uh, but because of planning uh, difficulties, it ended up taking place in 1893. And this was a World Fair uh, in the tradition of several that had taken place uh, before. I mean, going back to the, the Great uh, Crystal Palace exhibition in London of 1851. And um, but this was an opportunity for the young United States and uh, Chicago, this this burgeoning uh, uh, industrial, previously frontier, still sort of frontier city, to celebrate American achievements, uh, especially um, uh, econ economically and, and politically and in the sciences, et cetera, et cetera. But as um, as planning got underway, uh, some of the movers and shakers in the planning movement thought this there was a, a sort of a soulless aspect to this. It was all machines and material. There needed to be something of a spiritual or religious um, nature. Uh, and uh, as they began uh, talking, and especially uh, John Henry Barrows was the was the is the key figure planning this. He was the uh, a Presbyterian minister um, in, uh, in Chicago at the time, that they alighted on the idea to have this, uh, they didn't call it interfaith dialogue, but a world's parliament of religion to invite different um, 
representatives from different parts of the globe to come to Chicago to have what ended up being a 16-day session of uh, lectures and speeches on various aspects of uh, religious life. I mean, you know, um, to be fair, it was still largely a Christian and even largely sort of a, a Protestant thing. Um, but uh, there was quite a bit of religious diversity uh, there. Um, not so much from Islam, but for some of the religions of the East. Um, well, you, uh, you talk about 11th September, 1893, a facsimile of the Liberty Bell told 10 times in the White City. That's the main exhibition, which is now Jackson, uh, Jackson Park. Uh, paying homage to the great ten, 10 great religions of the world, Confucianism, Taoism, Shinto, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's kind of amazing. You don't think of that as happening at a World's Fair. At least I don't think of that as happening at a World's Fair in 1893. Right. Um, so, And were representatives from all those various uh, faiths present at this parliament? Yeah, most of them were, were present. Um, there was only one representative of Islam. Uh, the, Ottoman, the Ottoman Sultan had actually condemned the event, and uh, so that, I think that's one reason that explains why there was not that much um, uh, uh, Muslim uh, participation. Um, he was the caliph at the time. It's important to point that's, out. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He would have still been the, 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 the caliph. Um yeah, but it was probably some of the um, representatives from South Asia that made the biggest impact. Uh, uh, Swami Vivekananda. And, and yeah, talk, talk about him. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he comes over. He's of Bengali background, but had been educated in British missionary school. So he, he spoke you know, perfect English. So this surprised many people in Chicago. This might have been their first encounter with someone of a Hindu background who greets them in their own language, who proclaims, has this very uh, capacious, uh, welcoming understanding of uh, Hinduism. Um, and uh, he was just had a sort of a magnetic, charming personality. He went on a lecture tour throughout the United States. Afterwards, uh, many things, many aspects of Eastern thought and practices like yoga, Mm -hmm. history of yoga in America, Chicago, this event, and Swami Vivekananda gets a lot of a lot of attention in that um, uh, in that book. Uh, but of course, you know, the, it, this causes there's controversy as uh, as well um, at the time. Um, I, I can say, should I say a little more? Yeah, about please. That? Yeah, please. Okay. The controversy well, is important in all these in all these meetings too. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. like the. The leading evangelist at the time, Dwight Moody, essentially sort of set up a, a revival to kind of be in a counterpoint to what many people thought that the uh, Christian participation in the world's parliament was either on a slippery slope toward relativism or syncretism, and, uh, and that was problematic. Uh, some of the speakers, like notably Philip Schaff, great church, Swiss German church historian, he used it as a platform more to talk about the need for Christian unity or you know, what most people often call ecumenism to distinguish uh, questions of intra-Christian dialogue and unity from uh, interfaith dialogue or interreligious um, uh, dialogue. Um, and so that, that, that was a concern. I mean, it was so much a concern for the planners that they, in organizing it, yes, they, they decided quite intentionally not to have dialogue after speakers talked. They mm -hmm. thought it would just be of a polemical nature or... Mm -hmm. People trying to convert one another, so they um, uh, they sort of lay down the ground rules that after you know after a lecture, that would be that would be it. You know, go on to something, something, something else. Um, well, I was I was struck also by that James Cardinal Gibbons, who is sort of the chief prelate of as Archbishop of Baltimore, is chief Roman Catholic prelate of the United States, really gives his blessing. Uh, the brand new Catholic University of America, the provost or rector or president, whatever they call him at the time, Keene. I think he, he, he endorses it. I think he attends. Uh, Gibbons does not attend. But this is this gets into old territory for you uh, about, you know, the, the papacy and Roman Catholicism in the late 19th century. And uh, this is prior, I think, to the condemnation of Americanism as a heresy. Um, but this certainly must fuel uh, intra-Catholic uh, disputes, intra-Roman Catholic disputes. Yeah, no, that's uh, and I mean that's sort of a sub theme of the book that how interfaith dialogue, how it's 
often promoted to um, are, are often um, justified to promote unity. Ironically, often creates divisions <laughs> within particular faith communities over the very viability of interfaith yeah. dialogue and what it's for. And certainly, you see this in the Catholic Church. I mean, there there were debates among the American hierarchy of should they participate or not. And eventually, the pro voices won out. So there was uh, pretty good Catholic participation. Um, but although some of the justification, when you look at the archives, there is sort of an evangelizing sort of a mission element to um, uh, the Catholic participation and a desire at a time when there's a lot of nativism and anti-Catholicism in the United States to, you know, for them to make their case and have a more visible national platform. So there are a lot of motives that went into that. Mm -hmm. but, but there was, you know, concerns in Rome at this time about uh, about the, just the nature of liberal democracy, about the nature of American democracy. This is, you know, after a time, uh, or took place in a time where the Pope was considered a prisoner of the Vatican uh, after Italian unification in the 1860s and 1870s. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's great concern in some of these participants were even disciplined after um, after the fact. And uh, later, one of the popes, who is Pope Pius XI or twelfth, worried about, quote, promiscuous religious gatherings. And so, um, but yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. And this, this, there was some, quite a bit of internecine strife within the Catholic Church about, about 1893 and, and subsequent events mm -hmm. as, as well. What's some other? Where are some other results from this from this conference? I mean, uh, does it lead to other conferences, other parliaments like this? Um, that was certainly the hope. There's always seems to be the hope after every one of these conferences uh, that this will keep on going forever, um, but uh, it didn't. Kind of, sort of. Yeah, I think that's, that's the best way to express it. Sort of, it did. There was at the time in the 1890s a desire to make a kind of a lasting institution out of this, but for various reasons and lack of resources and just the com logistical complexity of bringing this all together, that did not take place then. It was briefly revived in a sort of a, another um, sort of commemoration fair in 1933, um, uh, but that really didn't have traction too. Um, but later with the uh, centennial event in 1993, a number of, especially uh, uh, Hindu uh, uh, practitioners uh, in Chicago uh, revived the idea, and uh, there was a, a centennial event in 1993, and it continues about every three or four years. There was a world of religion. I actually attended one when it took place in Toronto in uh, 2018, but they've taken place in Australia and Salt Lake City and South Africa, and uh, they're, they're quite a they're quite a phenomenon. This is sort of like a big tent. Uh, it sees uh, itself as sort of the you know, the uh, sort of flagship event of the, the modern interfaith. One uh, one thing uh, I, I I realized which made 1893 seem very far away, and I was thinking about this. I mean, the Columbian Exposition. When you think about it, if you add this, you add this also to the fact that Frederick Jackson Turner gave his famous paper on the close of the American frontier at the exposition as well. Uh, this is like the beginning. They must have existed before this, but this is the beginning of the modern academic conference in some ways. This is when conference papers are sexy and new. Uh, steamship travel and has gotten to the point where people can travel, make a big plan. It takes a lot of labor and plan, but you can go to Chicago from, you know, Tübingen and Heidelberg and Bombay and, Kolkata, and you can give a paper. Um, and people are as equally interested in going to listen to this paper. Would that be, would that be right? Are we looking at the beginning of also like, um, so this is sort of like an important turning point in academic professionalization? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, broadly, it takes place in that context of the, the birth of the academic conference, the academic journals. Um, I mean, you know, there's correspondence. We think of like the Republic of Letters in the early modern period and, you know, interaction. But I think the late 19th century, you know, mid and early 20th century could be the sort of the heyday of academic professionalization mm -hmm. in a number of fields. Um, I mean, one distinctive thing about the Chicago context, uh, happening more in Europe than the United States, but 
but the Chicago event gives a real boost to the, the uh, discipline of the comparative study of religion or religious history uh, as uh, in contrast to Christian theology. And yeah, that's, debates, that's, really an, important, that's an important point. Yeah. Can you, can yeah. you describe that? Because that's a huge influence, it seems, from the from this event. Right. Yeah. No, a number of the those who had organized the Chicago events had been influenced by, um, you know, again, what's often called the, the comparative study of religion or the study of religion. Um, you know, later we kind of call it religious studies. And mm-hmm. as I was about to say, you know, they, these conflicts still exist on many campuses, you know, should we call, especially those mm-hmm. with the church background, should we call our discipline theology or religious studies or, or both? Yeah. <laughs> or I like say UVA back when you were here, should we allow theologians yeah. into the religious studies department? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. UVA is an interesting case where you have yeah. <laughs> Um, but that is kind of a new and sexy field and, uh, you're getting, you know, just more, uh, ethnographic information and linguistic studies, you know, have been building, you know, from late 18th, the 19th century. So in, you could argue that something like this could only take place in the context of the, uh, the late 19th century. And when you add travel and uh, telegraph and, and uh, steam engine, um, it's it's enabled by you know these these many developments uh, you know both in the intellectual world and the material world and that, I think that's all important background for mm-hmm. and, and and the planners kind of realize that they, I mean they they very self consciously said this is a new thing under the sun you know never I mean they were aware of Akbar and you know some other historical precedents but I, I think it's safe to say that something of this logistical magnitude and something very deliberate from this world parliament of religions you know. You, I suggest that it is something of a novum in human human affairs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's move on to the third uh, center turning point, which is in London. I referenced it in 1924. Uh, it's the British Imperial Exhibition. I can get that right in, in Wembley. Um, it's sort of like a world's fair, but it's just for stuff from the empire. It's like in many ways, we can now see it as the last gasp of the empire. Um, at the time, the organizers thought of it was the bright new dawn for the new phase of empire. Um, so what's the, what's this curiously named thing there and what, what's its importance? But before we do that, also talk about it. It's the guy, Sir Alfred Young Husband, which is not an assumed name, uh, but not only has one of the greatest mustaches in history, um, he's just really interesting uh, fella. So we should talk about him first. Um. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, actually, would you mind if I just reverse the order and talked a little sure. bit about the- Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah. This is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, I mean, you're, you're spot on. I mean, it, but in historical retrospection, we can look and see this as just sort of a big last hurrah of the empire, which, of course, of the Second World War and, and partition of India begins to you know fall apart in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, but at the time, there was a lot of confidence. This was after World War One. Uh, uh, the empire had become larger after that, and it was an attempt to celebrate uh, the many achievements of empire. Uh, so this, it's really, you know, um, an imperial mindset. I, I mean, for many, it's hard to get our head around this uh, today. But not unlike Chicago, um, there were a number of figures, including Young Husband, including uh, Ross Dennison, who was the director of the School of Oriental Studies, now called the School of Oriental and African Studies, thought that there should be something that talked about the different faith traditions throughout the British Empire. And, uh, and they self-consciously reached back to Chicago and said, maybe, maybe this model will work for us. Can we have uh, various scholars, but especially practitioners of different faith traditions, come to London and, and have a, a discussion. They, they even adopted the same ground rules of not having discussion after lectures, but just to let people say their piece and um, and then move on to the next uh, to the next uh, speaker. Uh, and so this, you know, I think this is a novum in the in the metropole of London to do this type of thing. First time that many Britons had encountered um, uh, non non Christian non Jewish faith perspectives, you know, openly uh, talking about their um, their own traditions. But uh, one the person they invited to be the keynote uh, speaker was Sir Francis' young husband, and uh, Sir Francis, he, not Alfred, right? Yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, fiction, yeah. fiction can't make this guy up. No, you cannot. <laughs> he is a larger-than-life figure. He he's an imperialist in the old tradition. Uh, he was he led the very controversial British invasion of uh, Tibet in 1902, I believe. He chaired the committee uh, that sent um, uh, the, the first expedition of Mount Everest and. Uh, uh, but this other side of him, beside his swashbuckling adventurism and military exploits, um, he had an experience in Tibet um, where, he, you, you know, you read in his memoirs, he had this overwhelming sense that all religions taught joy uh, and peace and brotherhood and harmony. He, he read that, you know, um, uh, some of Leo Tolstoy's writings seem especially to be influential uh, in him. And he participated in the, in the 1924 event. And astoundingly, he had religion somewhat idiosyncratically defined by himself as this, this, this uh, energy, uh, this force suffusing humanity that speaks to ultimate joy. He thought religion could be the glue of empire. That mm-hmm. shouldn't necessarily be held together by, by force and other things. But there is this, this potential harmony if we all get in touch with this um, this thing as he defines it, religion. Uh, I also want to want to warn people is that when you Google Francis Young, you'll find that the guy believes some really strange things. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I would <laughs> I would say Conan Doyle would probably, with his belief in fairies, would probably look at Francis Young husband and say, "Really? You know I mean, <laughs> right? You believe yeah. in that?" I mean, so this, this, he goes in some pretty strange directions, but you know, at the same time, which makes his role in this all the more interesting and amazing in some ways that he is, he is sort of the erect, you know, sword, you know, straight erect servant of empire and of, you know, benevolent religion. Uh, at That's right. Places. Yeah. No, that, that, that captures his, his two, two sides. Yeah. And there is, I mean, his interest in the cult and esoteric things of, you know, find that in his um in his background but anyway he, he gives the keynote did, talk did you read all his stuff did you actually inf- inf- do that did you read all his did you look through his books I'm, i well, was like i was thinking poor tal he had to read through <laughs> all okay. <of> Francis Young. <laughs> some some things yeah, I, I, I actually uh, his uh, in the uh, british libraries where they hold his archive so i, I oh know, okay. As Dr. Johnson said, sir, I have read in it. <laughs> <laughs> I have read in it. So, yeah, I'll, I'll adopt that line uh, myself. Yeah, but um, That's a very good one. He, he was just sort of taken up by the energy of this event, and he too wanted to establish an ongoing institution. Um, and I mean, another key context here is just the, you know, the ending of World War One and um, uh, the... Uh, uh, the League of Nations and the desire, you know, how do you, how do you prevent wars in the future? And shouldn't there also be, in, in addition to political and diplomatic efforts to avoid war, should there be a religious dimension as well? Mm-hmm. League of Nations of, of, of different uh, uh, religious outlooks. Anyway, through various twists and turns, there is another conference, a couple of conferences, but in 1936, there is one um, that does found what's called the World Congress of Faiths. And uh, it exists to this day. Uh, they, they had much better. I mean, Young Husband was the, was the key figure, uh, the driving force behind this. Um, and uh, uh, with the desire that it would be something like an, uh, a, a companion to the League of Nations, which was failing in the, uh, uh, in the, 19, uh, in the 1930s. Uh, and it claims to be the oldest continuously existing um, uh, organization committed to interfaith dialogue. And, uh, and you know, I, I think that that's you know a fair uh, a fair claim. Although today it's it's a much shrunken and never never kind of lived up to the the hopes and aspirations that Young Husband had of it. Well, we'll uh, get back to some of the um, some of the points of other points of interest, uh, perhaps of comparative interest. Uh, between Chicago and London. Let's go to the sort of, to my mind, in some ways, the Joker in the pack. And you must have enjoyed putting it there, which is of the four aces, this one looks different. And this is Rome. This is Second Vatican Council. Um, this is very different, isn't it, than the other three uh, The other three things? We've got one, we've got the Emperor Akbar, who's got a sort of Sufiist sort of, you know, monotheism that he kind of has. We've got uh, the the chief organizer of Chicago was a Swedenborgian, 
Um, we've got Young Husband, whatever he is, very involved with the London conference and then with the uh, subsequent institutional attempts. And then we've got, you know, I mean, say what you will about John the 23rd, but the Pope is still a Catholic. Um, isn't this kind of a different, very different animal than the other conferences? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, I, I think one thing that um, just in my organization of the book, uh, in addition to turning points, this notion of centers and peripheries that we was referenced earlier, and uh, you know, looking at Fatipur Sikri, an imperial center, Chicago, uh, which was a, you know, a major city at the time of a World's Fair, you know, uh, a young nation state, uh, London, the, the metropole of the British Empire, and Rome as the, the center of global Catholicism. So it shares that much in common. But I, I think you're right. This was a much more heavily theologized event. It took place not in the context of a world fair, but in the terms of a, an ecumenical uh, uh, council, uh, 21st Council, as the Catholic Church reckons, going all the way back to the Council of, of Nicaea. Uh, so I, th I think you're right. I mean, it, it has its own distinctive elements. Um, and uh, I'll say, I mean, a, a word about it is just it, it, the, there was a, one of the 16 documents that came out of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, one was entitled Nostra Atate, or Our Age. And it has a very interesting development at the council. Um, as you know, uh, John Pope John the Twenty Third calls the council in 1959 and meets for the first time in 62 and finishes it, it, its business in 19 in 1965. Um, and one idea that surfaced, especially because of some Jews in France, called it to the Pope's attention was: shouldn't there be a post-Holocaust statement that comes out of the council? This is a, a horrible event. We all recognize it. Uh, uh, leaders in the Catholic Church, or, you know, most of them, I would like to think, some more uh, thoughtful and sensitive ones recognize the strains of anti-Semitism in, in the Church's background. They thought this was only right and good to have a, a, a Jewish Catholic statement. But once that became a thing, a reality at the Council, many of the bishops in the Middle East began to worry that well, if you have a, a Catholic Jewish statement, now that the state of Israel has been founded in 1948, this is going to be seen as sort of a, a, a kind of a pro-Zionist document. And uh, so from that, it began to expand, not just a statement on Catholic uh, and Jewish uh, relations, but including Islam as well. But then the bishops in South Asia said, well, if, you, if you're talking about Judaism and Islam and Catholicism, you need, you need to talk about you know, Eastern Asian traditions as well. So what, what began as a, 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 I mean, just to summarize, as a Jewish Catholic statement morphed into a more of a um, justification of interfaith uh, dialogue. And, and the, uh, uh, the document, again, Nostra Aetate, does... Um, you know, after a lot of vacillation about the subject in the 20th century, does make a pretty um, bold and well-theologized statement uh, while, you know, uh, keeping within the bounds of Catholic uh, theology to justify uh, interfaith. Well, well in interesting that compared to the, um, compared to these other three meetings that we've discussed, this is the one that actually has legs. Um, that it has a, it's theologized, yes, but also there's there's also directions of practice that proceed from this in substantive ways. It's very strange. I mean, w what would Sir, Sir Francis Young husband have thought, or the uh, uh, the organizers of the Chicago conference, if they had been told that by 1965, the most important um, interfaith dialogue uh, and sort of fuel for interfaith dialogue had proceeded from of all places the Vatican? It'd be, that's really strange. I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, many many things about Vatican II, <laughs> if you dial back the clock before 1959 or 1962, would, would be surprising, even astounding, uh, you know, yeah. including statement, statements on ecumenism, statements on um, religious liberty, uh, its alter, alterations in liturgical practices. So I, I think that this would be of a piece with that. But I, th I think many people did see this as kind of one of the most radical things that the council did. And it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, introduce certain um, practices and avenues of thinking about religious others uh, that was unprecedented in the church's 
history. I, I mean, I do in the first chapter, I, I mentioned Francis of Assisi, mm-hmm. I mentioned the late medieval theologian uh, Nicholas of Cusa, mm-hmm. uh, as, uh, in some ways anticipate what happened at Vatican II, but they're, you know, they're, they're quite distant um, uh, you know, from it in, uh, in, in other ways. And, and I think, you know, like in many other realms, that it, it has been a complex to- topic in, in Catholic uh, theology until the, until the present. I, I do, you know, I, I do, after that, I do profile the papacy of John Paul II in 1986. Yeah. He organized this major gathering of um, religious leaders in Assisi, sort of drawing from the charisma of Francis of Assisi and the, uh, all the associations that that um, Umbrian uh, town has to gather to pray for peace. Not, he was very clear to say, we're not praying together, but we are together to pray. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a very subtle <laughs> distinction that was lost on, lost on many people. Some, some of the more you know, conservative um, uh, prelates were concerned about that, including uh, then, uh, Ratzinger, the later, uh, the later uh, pope. But I, I found that interesting because, I mean, today, you know, many people would think, in contrast to Pope Francis, that John Paul II is a more conservative person, a conservative theologian in many respects. But he, he was, I mean, he was gung-ho about interfaith dialogue. Well, as you point out, his very first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, is basically a meditation on Nostra Aetate. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, it's very important what a pope does as a first encyclical. It's, so it's very interesting that he chose that. And that he was, he was, uh, had manic enthusiasm for as long as his body could last for doing personal interreligious dialogue. Uh, I never considered that about him, uh, but that is certainly a, an aspect, an unmistakable aspect of his, of his papacy. Yeah, no, it's a tremendous legacy. I mean, the, and, I mean, he traveled the world over, I mean, doing various things, but often interacting with uh, people from different faith backgrounds, hosting them. At the Vatican uh, as well, but um, you know, generally, uh, you know, people think interfaith dialogue—that's the thing the more liberal Catholics do. But mm-hmm. you know, John Paul II is a more you know conservative Catholic, but he he did not see that distinction at all. I mean, he has, I think, some more conservative theological positions, but his enthusiasm for interfaith dialogue and and its its efficacy and its and its kind of deeper spiritual importance um, uh, was. Uh, uh, you know, was part and part of the legacy of his. So, I mean, why? I mean, he, you point out, that, of course, his connections, uh, his Jewish connections, um, his connections, his, his lifelong uh, uh, Jewish friendships. Um, he, we know that he assisted uh, people after the end of World War II, people who were refugees and so on. But, so there's, there's that. He definitely believes in the reconciliation of Judaism and Christianity and Jews and Christians. But why, what's the explanation for the rest of it? Because, you know, as was often said during his papacy by his critics, he's, from, he's a Pole, they're not cosmopolitans, he's set in his ways, he's backward. So why does he show, on the contrary, this interest in something that's outside of his experience, one would think. That's a, that's a, a great question. And I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I only have partial answers uh, you know, uh, to that. Uh, I, I think you're right that you know, he had a number of close um, uh, Jewish friendships with one individual in particular. I'm forgetting his name uh, uh, right now, but I think that is important. Um, you know, I think just the problem of violence in the, the modern world, he experienced the, the Nazi disaster, and then of course the the whole uh, uh, communism uh, and uh, um, and Stalinism. So I, I think broadly the questions of peace are important. Um, I think I mean his interest goes back prior to 1989 and the fall of the wall and say the the eruption of violence like in. in Bosnia Herzegovina, but I, I think it was really kind of quickened by seeing that after you have the collapse of this bipolar world, the type of you know ethnic and religious tensions that begin to surface, um, and uh, and you know I think some I would just say theological reasons. He, he was a young expert at the Vatican Council, so he you know experienced and was part of some of those discussions mm-hmm. uh, uh, firsthand and. Uh, 
and just his enthusiasm. I mean, he loved to travel. He loved to, he thought, and, and he, in his mind, these two were always connected, sort of the, the task of mission of the church and dialogue. Uh, mm-hmm. But that had been, um, uh, you know, a, a thorny issue. There was, you know, coming out of Vatican II, there is uh, the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue was founded in the wake of Vatican II. And that, and that continues to this day. And it seems like about every five or 10 years, they put out a statement, usually with the word mission and dialogue in the title, <laughs> trying to balance. How do you how do you have, you know, believe in the Great Commission, evangelization, mission, whatever you want to call it, but also square that with the need to really listen to others and learn from others and to, to do that. I mean, in, interestingly today is the number of Catholic theologians that are kind of ahead of some of the key exponents from what are called comparative theology, mm-hmm. which itself being distinct both from, like, say, purely Christian theology that only works on Christian sources, but also not comparative religion in sort of a neutral social scientific sense, but right. that they see themselves anchored in one tradition. Let's get, yeah, let's get back to that in just a second as we talk about what what, moving forward. I just say that with, with, I know we're, we're all intellectual historians here, so we want to avoid talking about history of ideas. Uh, Oof, that's bad. But um, as I was thinking about it, maybe we need an old fashioned historian of ideas to think about uh, the way that, uh, well, Tiwa, John Paul II, uh, what phenomenology did for this? Because I suspect that a lot of this comes from his his ideas of of phenomenology, and of the and of the human person, somehow. Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, he's a great personalist philosopher, and so yes, he is. View, um, you know, that has uh, you know some strands of continental theology, but I think there's a real theological anchor in his mind of you know all human beings reflecting the imago dei. Uh, and that you know, if if that is true, if the, you know all human beings are created in the image of God, you know it should be of interest. Wh- whatever they uh, view as over the high, yeah. however they define transcendence and try to connect with it, it should be of great importance to right. to Catholic or other Christians. So I, yep. I think there is a uh, there's a philosophy and theology of, of the human person and human dignity uh, yeah. and, uh, behind behind his his, his activity. Well, let's talk about some, as we wrap up, let's talk about some similarities and differences. So let me fire a few of them off. Um, Akbar and Young Husband uh, have some very interesting similarities, it seems to me. Um, both of them see this work of interreligious dialogue as having a political end. Um, they're also interested, obviously interested in religions, but they have to see a political end. I'm not sure I can pick out any one person at Chicago that feels that way. But it, uh, but it seems to me that, that part of the appeal for some people of interreligious dialogue is of really doing the real thing, which is allowing political communities to live in peace together. You know? um, second, a second uh, connection. I was struck, I think I said to you before we started recording, uh, sort of the guy who had the idea for the uh, World Parliament of Religion in Chicago is Swedenborgian. That's roughly dates to the 1780s. We have uh, Francis Young Husband, who grew up evangelical and then became a Tolstoyan sort of syncretist, very interested in this new religion. That's one sort of new religion. We've got Akbar, who is actually also interested in a new religion. Um, you know, uh, only a Lefebvreite would say that John the 23rd was interested in a new religion. Uh, they're still, the Pope is still Catholic. So, but, but at least three of the people that are at the heart of three of these conferences are interested, have a sort of a new religious vision, uh, which, which um, is either, either either prompted by their interest in interreligious dialogue or prompts their religious interest in interreligious dialogue. Can you uh, fire back at me to those two things? Yeah, I, I think yeah, I, I think yeah, a lot of what you just said is is, uh, is spot on analysis, um, and that I, I especially I think the comparisons between Akbar and Young Husband both have this sort of empire in mind, um, uh, or, or at least that's sort of conditioning some of their thinking and uh, animating it to some uh, extent. Um, you know, the American situation is different. I mean, yes, we could argue, you know, you might argue say that this is the beginning of the American empire. Uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, Frederick uh, Jackson Turner's thesis, the, the, the end of the frontier, and the beginning of the United States uh, uh, look, looking abroad. Um, you know, one thing I, maybe I should have mentioned about Chicago, pr- probably more of them, of uh, the events that, uh, 
religious freedom was very much emphasized at that. Mm-hmm. There, were, there were many references to the First Amendment as that being important, uh, scaffolding for allowing the conference um, in the, uh, the, the, first, um, uh, the first place. Um, you know, one figure, though, I, w- I would mention at Chicago, uh, John Henry Barrows, that was the other, uh, Bonnie, who right. was a Swedenborgian, but uh, yeah. uh, John Henry Barrows did most of the heavy lifting for that event. Okay. <laughs> He, he was a Presbyterian, and, and his own denomination actually scolded him for participation, but he, he just uh, went ahead doing it anyway. Um, and uh, and he, you know, there was, I mean, Chicago, I, I, I mean, I you know, want to clarify that, I mean, it was an interfaith event, but it was also kind of a liberal Protestant event. It was a celebrating for Protestant freedoms. They began all sessions with saying the Lord's Prayer. Many focus more on Christian ecumenism, and uh, there was a sort of an inclusivist theology that's you know just was in the air at the time that you know did not necessarily see other faiths as wrong, but they were they were kind of incomplete. That what they what Christianity and especially Protestant modern Protestant had expressed in the fullest, and other faiths did so darkly, dimly, inchoately, and it had this sort of inclusivist Christian theology uh, that was present, uh, that was present there. So I, I wouldn't want to say it was just a, you know, a pluralist uni- interfaith event. Uh, it, it was kind of a heavily, uh, you know, Christian event to some extent as well, uh, you know, despite significant Jewish participation mm-hmm. uh, and uh, participation from uh, religious representatives of South, South Asia. Well, I'm, I'm re- this is the, the million dollar question. Um, we've had Tom Holland on the podcast. I'll l- put in the links talking in his book, Dominion. He spends a lot of time talking about the way that Christianity gave uh, people going to India language to talk about this thing called religion uh, in a way that people in India never would have. But we, I, I'm very struck by the prominence of India in these conferences. British Empire exhibition, you kind of expect that. Chicago, though, as we we, t- we touched briefly on it, India is uh, hugely important. Representatives from India, I get that list of faiths. So many of them come from the subcontinent. And, of course, Akbar as an Indian empire. So there's a way in which um, India is almost a, a, um, a key for understanding the way that people are conceptualizing religion. India and sort of developments in liberal Protestantism uh, sort of tugging at each other are ways of conceptualizing both what religion means, but also what pluralism means. Am I? Am I? I don't. I don't quite see how to do this. You. You. You do a better job of this in the book, but I. I'm trying to work this out for myself. How does this? Because there's a way in which even the concept of religion is refined and and reified. If I can, I hope I use that right. Uh, by the fact of these interreligious dialogues. Yeah, no, yeah, many thoughts come to mind. Let me see if I, I can organize them. First, I would say that India does end up looming quite large in the book. And even in the book's introduction, I, I said, if I, and I picked these two regions of the world quite deliberately, that the book expressed you know, my own learning, but also my limitations. And I said, mm-hmm. if I was a scholar in the Middle East or the Indian subcontinent, this you could write a book on this topic, but it would be different than my. Uh, uh, than my book, uh, but I think particularly because of the religious complexity of India, um, Islam, the home of Buddhism, Jainism, Zoroastrianism uh, to a degree, uh, uh, you know, even though that began in its present day um, Iran. Um, so I think just the the, the complexity uh, of India, and that many scholars in this new field of comparative religion, you know, want to do research and study in, in India uh, because of the uh, because of the access, I think the British Empire has mm-hmm. has there, that, you know, not, not, not you know, in other areas. I, I think uh, uh, you know that's an important role, role as well. But uh, what, one of the real, I guess, findings of the book, if I may speak about this religion, uh, sure, you know, generally that that category, um, and maybe, maybe I knew some of this in, in broad outline you know, through scholars like uh, Wilfred Cantwell Smith and Talal Assad and. William Kavanaugh and, and others that you know religion is kind of a modern concept, a post enlightenment or at least enlightenment post enlightenment concept that uh, you know religio 
goes back to the um, you know the Latin root for binding, and when it's used early on, uh, it's 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 kind of like a virtue. It would be piety would probably be the mm -hmm. better. Yeah, that's the best way I think. Yeah. But it, it becomes sort of like this genus category uh, and begins only to be used in the plural in the 19th century. Uh, and I believe it's only like in the 11th edition of Britannica, where the entry is not just religion, but there's one of religions, mm -hmm. which is this genus category that there are these different manifestations of that throughout. So throughout it is literally 11th edition. It literally it is after the Chicago Parliament. This is Connecticut. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to check. I'm trying to think. Is it the ninth or check that? Yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's yeah. pretty. It's yeah. I have to check that again. But it's pretty. It's amazing how similar, how uh, coincidental it is. So coincidental yeah. that you begin to get suspicious. You know, yeah. So that kind of religion being understood as a genus category, and and also being something as a discrete phenomenon from political life or social life. Right. Or other, right. In a way elements. that would have made absolutely no sense to even people in the middle of the Enlightenment. To be honest, yeah. I mean, yeah. try telling an American in 1790 that it's really hard for people to, you know, there's like a, <laughs> this is a different topic, different podcast I just recorded, but it's really hard to tell people in 1780s of Virginia that religion and politics are separate. Um, right. They pass a law, but they still won't believe it. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so, you know, this, the word, it, it, it takes off in various forms of other languages. And I've, you know, talked to scholars of Islam and of China. I think China adopted a word that came through um, Japanese that sort of has this meaning of a genus, but it was just so foreign that these that you can separate this, the sacred domain, the political domain, the you know the expressing the whole religious wars and of intellectual Lockean developments in the West. When you think of the separation, and, and that's true with the um, you know the Arabic word din, din as uh, was transcribed as well. That that idea of it being a discrete phenomenon and something separated from these other domains of life is a, uh, you know, it, it is something that's largely a Western phenomenon. And I, I don't like, you know, some scholars say, well, because of that, you just shouldn't use religion at all or kind of come up with some other language. But I, I try to at least be sensitive to that linguistic development and that many of the people promoting and advocating, you know, religious dialogue in these conferences kind of operate with that kind of great world religion model, mm -hmm. you know, 10 or 12 or, you know, right great religions of the world, which is kind of still around. We sort of have this idea, this vague idea that these are these, um, these religions. And, you know, there's been a lot of study, like on the construction of Hinduism. Um, you know, you have this great uh, complexity uh, within the, uh, you know, what we would call the Hindu traditions and, and British scholars you know, call that Hinduism. And is this a real thing or is this a scholarly creation? Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, trying to make uh, unitary something that's actually much more complex and, you know, that, uh, than it so let's uh, briefly deal with sort of an after-action report, uh, trying to answer the question, but does it work? Um, so it's it certainly Vatican II and Nostra Aetate and then the sort of direction that John Paul II pushed things, that certainly changed things. Uh, there are a lot more religious studies departments until recently. You <laughs> uh, say so with a, a mordant laugh, we might start to see even, they, we might start to see that start to disappear. Uh, there were lots more conferences afterwards, but what did, did what worked out of this? Well, that is the question. <laughs> and I, uh, I, you know, at, at some point I'm going to say I'm a historian and this is oh, yes. futurologist and not for me, but of course you have to say something, you know, in a, in a book and, and I do in the conclusion, just raise some questions about its ongoing salience. It's, and even get into some of the normative uh, issues uh, a little bit. And uh, yeah, I, I guess my my bottom line judgment would be it's something of a mixed bag. I, I think there have been instances that it has worked, uh, but it's it's something it, it's hard to, um, uh, as we would say in academic bureaucratic talk, measure the outcomes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. What are the outcomes? How do you how do you you know, really them. hard to get the foundation support without going right. forward, without knowing how, right. how is this going to scale? <laughs> <laughs> but due to it, its popularity and that it's kind of taken off on a global level, I mean, many people are seeing something in it. And I, you know, I have been, um, 
I, I'm probably, I mean, I, I, I quoted Ibu Patel, who had some reservation about this, what I call the more parliament style approach, where you get a, you know, mm-hmm. a number of religious experts or scholars together. And, and some of these, as I say, become kind of predictably anodyne affairs. And one speaker after the other gets up and says, we need to be peaceful with one another. We need to be peaceful with one another. And the kind of thing you, you know, I kind of can't disagree with if you say it's kind of like we shouldn't be kicking little old ladies in the head or something like that well well, hang on a second some of them deserve it (laughs) okay that's that's my approach to conferences again maybe (laughs) uh no where i've seen it probably most effective you know during the you know i wanted to do some of the historical scholarship but i wanted to visit a few places outside the united states where it was being practiced so i could get just a better sense of the what was going on. So I, I went to the Interfaith Council in Sarajevo in Bosnia, and they have a council, and I, I talked to the director or one of the directors of this organization, and they their goal is not really to solve the difference between Islam and Christianity or Orthodox Christianity and Catholicism in the abstract, but really just to bring young people together to try to uh, uh, kind of deal with the violence in the 90s that took place, um, you know, in the Balkans uh, and, and around Bosnia. Um, and they do, and I think one remarkable little thing that they did is, like, you know, when there's an act of, like, say, vandalism in a mosque, they might send a Catholic priest to go and see if he can do anything for the community and pray for them. And so it's, it's much more proximate to the specific geographical issues on hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what's going on, you know, in the in the Balkans post 1990s after the uh, the, the conflicts then, and not not sort of large generic questions of world peace and uh, uh, that you get at some of the, the parliament uh, 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 things. I, I also impressed uh, 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 Peter uh, Ox at uh, uh, Virginia. I, I've never met him, but uh, I became familiar with the uh, the scriptural re- reasoning practices that he did. I was dragged in there as a stupid cousin once to be a token token Christian. Okay. Uh, Peter Uh, Oaks, who can make more Christian, a Christian, a Jew, and a a Muslim walk into a bar jokes than (laughs) than any other human being probably alive. Yeah. Um, So, and there, there, it's, it's extraordinary. I was, I was like, what am I getting myself into? But it's extraordinarily different than anything I ever imagined like that. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's very different, and it's and it, it was really and good. it does have some legs. I mean, theologians have picked picked up on it. I know David Ford at Cambridge and a few others, and it's even you know they've you know come up with little reading modules that are done in places. And I, I actually I, I was in Cairo and I participated in one of these more on the ground uh, spiritual yeah. reasoning, you know, where we were looking at passages of uh, Christian scripture and the Quran together and. You know, these are small groups, and it, it allows for kind of interpersonal interaction. You know, I, I don't know if it's going to you know, solve the global problem with violence, but but it does. You know, it, it's a real learning experience, and you know those. Um, Just to give some people some sense of it, you get one sheet of paper, and you have three short passages: one from the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and one from the Quran. Um, they're typically very closely related in some way. Uh, maybe they're inspired one another. It's it's or or maybe the passage. It's a passage from Jesus or Paul commenting on a script a passage in the Old Testament. Maybe it's a passage in Quran, which is clearly referencing something from the Hebrew. And then you both interpret it your passages in your way, and the other people say this is what we do in our thing. And, and that's that's basically it. And one one thing it makes does is makes you a good reader, which is which is important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what I did, we, I mean, we we just had, I think it was just New Testament passages in, in, in the Quran. There were no Jews in, involved, but it, it does, you know, it makes you realize, you know, what are your hermeneutical lenses and how does someone, you know, from outside the tradition read their own tradition and read yours. I really, in some of the literature, I can't remember where I picked this up, but um, they spoke of the goal as, as, you know, not necessarily being some harmonic convergence among you know, different religious faiths. And, and you, you hear that kind of canard quite often in some interfaith circles that all faiths ultimately say the same thing. And mm-hmm. Young husband champions this kind of view. Um, mm-hmm. that deep down, they all say the same thing. And I think that's as long true. as they like the British Empire. Yeah, and that's the, that's the sine qua non. Uh, and then Akbar felt the same way about his empire. So that's the... But then, you know, one, one of the 
express goals of the scriptural reasoning is to is to achieve better quality disagreement. And I, I thought that's a that's a more proximate. That goal. is that's that, exactly that, what they say. Yeah, yeah, that might be that's, achievable. So I thought, that's it, well, that we could might achieve. Well. Uh, <laughs> Tal, uh, thanks so much for uh, being with us. My guest today has been Tal Howard. He's the author of The Faiths of Others, A History of Interreligious Dialogue. And I swear to you, it's much more interesting than it might sound, because talking about God is interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd like to think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take care. Thank you. Thank you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.